Brothers and sisters, let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word. If you would, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and we will once again read verses 3 through 14 as those verses do go together. Uh, The sermon today will focus in only upon verses 11 through 14. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord add his blessing also to the proclamation of it. Brothers and sisters, we have come now to the third and final section of this opening of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Here in verses 11 through 14, special emphasis is given to the role in which the Holy Spirit plays in the accomplishment of God's plan of redemption. In short, we will learn that the Spirit seals the believer. He is therefore called the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. But before we get to that portion of the passage, I want for you to see that Paul never really moves on from his insistence that all of these spiritual blessings that are ours, the forgiveness of our sins, our adoption as sons, our redemption from sin and death, they are ours because God the Father determined to give them to us in eternity past, being moved by nothing external to himself, but only according to the counsel of his will and through Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. In other words, though it is true that this text is divided into three sections, with emphasis given, first of all, to that which the Father has done, he chose us in Christ, and secondly, to that which the Son has done, he has redeemed us by his blood, and thirdly, to what the Spirit has done, he has sealed us as a guarantee of our inheritance. Never does Paul leave that originating act of the predestinating of the Father, nor the mediating act of the Son behind. Instead, he carries those truths along throughout this text and makes constant reference to them so that we might continue to marvel at the glory of the grace of the triune God as manifested in his plan of redemption. At first glance, uh, verse 11 might seem like a plain repetition 
of what was said earlier in verse 5. In verse 5, we read, He, that is the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Again, that is verse 5 of Ephesians 1. And here in verse 11, we read, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. These two verses sound very similar. They both make reference to the predestinating or predetermining act of the Father. And they both insist that God predestined being moved, if you will allow me to use that term, only by his own will and not by things external to himself. But verses 5 and 11 differ in two ways. One, verse 5 has our being predestined to adoption as sons in view, whereas verse 11 has predestination to what the ESV translates as an inheritance in view. Two, and even more significantly, verses 5 and 11 differ in that while the us in verse 5 refers to all who will believe upon Christ and thus to be adopted as sons of God, The us in verse 11 refers more specifically to those who, and I quote, were the first to hope in Christ. Look for a moment at verse 12. There we read, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And now look at verse 13. In him you also, Paul says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I draw your attention to these things in the introduction to the sermon because we will miss one of the main points of this passage entirely if we fail to recognize that this is not a straightforward repetition of what has been said earlier regarding our predestination to adoption as sons through Christ and according to the will of the Father. Something more nuanced is going on here. Paul is here in this passage distinguishing between those who were the first to hope in Christ and his audience, that is to say the Ephesian Christians, signified by the phrase, in him you also, at the start of verse 13. And so why this distinction? Well, as we will see, this distinction is here not so as to emphasize differences between the two groups, but rather their unity in Christ Jesus. And with that said, let us now take this passage one phrase at a time. The first line of verse 10 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. The in him is yet again a reference to Christ Jesus. It is one of the 13 references to him found in this passage. And I think that you probably get the point by now. Any spiritual blessing that is ours is ours only in or through Christ Jesus. The Father determined to give us the spiritual blessing. He is the source of all blessing, therefore, but he also determined to give it in him, that is to say, in the Beloved, and through his mediation. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Uh, This entire passage is here emphasizing what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, as I just quoted that text, that everything we have in Christ, God's entire plan of of redemption, and all of the benefits that come to us within it are mediated through Christ Jesus. In him, in him, 
in him is the repeated refrain. As I have said, the we here in verse 10, in him we have obtained an inheritance, refers not to all Christians generally, but specifically to those who were the first to hope in Christ. Clearly, Paul considered himself to be a part of that group. He was one of the first to hope in Christ. And here Paul teaches that those first Christians, those who were the first to hope in Christ, obtained what the ESV calls an inheritance. What does he mean by this? Well, I think it is clear that there is some difficulty in translating the Greek word that is here rendered as obtained an inheritance. Uh, The NET Bible translates the word like this, In Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession, since we were predestined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. And so instead of obtained an inheritance, the NET says, we too have been claimed as God's own possession. And the NIV translates the Greek word saying this, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of who of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Instead of obtained an inheritance, the NIV has, in him we were also chosen. These two translations bring out the sense that instead of simply receiving something, namely an inheritance, these first disciples of Christ were in fact appointed to something. They received an appointment or calling And I think this is probably the right translation of this Greek verb, which is in the passive voice. These who were the first to hope in Christ received a particular and special calling or appointment. They were predestined by God to play a special and unique role in the accomplishment of God's plan of redemption. That is the idea being communicated here, and this is where Paul takes us. In verse 11b, Paul continues, saying, Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Though this phrase has specific reference to the appointment or calling of the first disciples of Christ, notice that it reveals general truths about God's predestinating too. Here it is stated clearly that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, This is the same truth that we teach our children when we ask them in Baptist Catechism 10, what are the decrees of God? And we teach them to answer, saying the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Ephesians 1.11 is actually listed as a support text along with Romans 11.36 and Daniel 4.35 in our catechism. All things that come to pass are the outworking of God's singular decree. And here in Ephesians 1.11, Paul does again identify what motivated or moved God to decree or predestine as he did. Twice in this short passage, we read the words, according to. Those who were the first to hope in Christ were predestined to their appointment according to the purpose of God. And this is the God who, we are told more generally, 
works all things according to the counsel of his will. There are many Christians who will admit that God has predestined or foreordained whatsoever will come to pass. This they must do if they claim to believe the scriptures, for the scriptures are so clear and frequent in their use of these terms. But some, because they are far more concerned with teaching human freedom, or at least their version of it, than they are with acknowledging the freedom of God to do as he wishes with his creation, will say, well, sure, God predestinated, but he predestinated according to what he foresaw would happen. In other words, they assert that predestination is not so much God determining in and of himself what will happen, but rather God observing what will happen, because he is, after all, omniscient and knows the beginning and the end, and then decreeing what he decrees based upon what he observes. This is actually a very popular view today. It takes different forms. But in all its forms, this view is thoroughly unbiblical. And I will give you only three reasons why it is unbiblical for the sake of time. One, nowhere do the scriptures teach this. Yes, the scriptures teach that God is omniscient. He sees the future with perfect clarity. Uh, the future is, to him, as clear as the past and the present. But this does not mean that God is a passive observer of human history. Rather, what the scriptures teach is that God knows the future because he has decreed it. And so consider Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, which says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so, no, God is not a passive observer of human history ahead of time, decreeing what he decrees based upon what he observes. Instead, he decrees what he decrees from within himself. He decrees what he decrees, according to the counsel of his will. And no, Romans 8.29 most certainly does not teach that God predestines based upon what he foreknows or foresees, as some erroneously teach. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Pay careful attention this text most certainly does not say that God predestined some based upon what he saw them do ahead of time. It does not teach that he predestined them because he saw that they would have faith ahead of time. To the contrary, it teaches that God foreknew not facts but individuals. And all those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, etc., and so tell me, friends, what does God foreknow? He foreknows everything. He sees with perfect clarity everything that everyone will do. And so I ask then, are all predestined being foreknown by God in this sense? And the answer is clearly no. So then, this does show that something is terribly wrong with your interpretation of what foreknew means in Romans 8.29. Brothers and sisters, in Romans 8.29, it is not facts about people that are foreknown. 
In other words, nowhere does this text say that God foresees who will believe and then predestines them. Instead, it is people who are foreknown by God. The meaning is this. God chose in eternity past to set his love upon certain people, and these he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And this interpretation of the word foreknew is perfectly consistent with the way that the word is used elsewhere in Scripture, particularly by Peter in 1 Peter 1.18. Speaking to Christians, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, that is Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. What does Peter mean by this? Does he use the same Greek word translated here, foreknown, to mean that God, because he is omniscient, saw that this man named Jesus the Christ happened to come into the world and to die for others, to ransom them by his blood? And so then, in response to what God foresaw, God determined to send him? That would, of course, be absurd. No, instead, the word foreknown is used here in the same way that it is used in Romans 8.29, as a close synonym for election. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, God chose him, and he chose to set his love upon him and to appoint him to be the redeemer of his elect. And so, too, when Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, it does not speak of God's omniscience, but of his unconditional election of some in eternity past. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is Romans 8, 29 through 30. And so there is that unbreakable chain of redemption. All who were at first foreknown by God will also in time be called, justified, and glorified in the end. Nowhere do the scriptures teach that God predestined according to what he foresaw. Two, this view that God predestinated according to what he in his omniscience foresaw is incompatible with the word predestined. The word means to determine ahead of time. But according to this foreknowledge view, as it is often called, God doesn't determine anything. He only foresees and then responds to the choices of his creatures. So I ask you, according to this scheme, who is it that determines what will happen? It is not God, but it is the creature. If this is true, then why does Paul say again and again in this passage that it is God who predetermines and chooses? This foreknowledge view in all of its forms, Molinism included, makes man to be the determiner and not God. Three, Paul not only teaches that God predestined, he also addresses the question, according to what? In other words, he addresses the question, 
what moved God to predetermine as he did? And the answer is very consistent throughout this passage and also in others. God predestined, we are told, according to his purpose, according to the counsel of his will. In other words, he did not predestinate being moved by things external to himself. No one whispered in the ear of God saying, I think you should do this. Nor did he look down the corridors of time to see what man would do so that he might predestinate according to what he foresaw. The scriptures nowhere teach that, but instead say again and again that God predetermined what he predetermined according to his own will. Again, Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.9, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And Ephesians 1.11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul deals with this doctrine of predestination in Romans 8 through 11. And near to the end of Romans 11, he bursts out in praise, much like he does here in Ephesians 1, saying, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that Christians have real trouble with the doctrine of predestination. Not because the scriptures are unclear on this point. Neither is it simply that their doctrine of salvation is out of sorts. More fundamentally, they have a distorted view of God. They fail to recognize that God is not like us in some very important ways. He is above us. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways inscrutable. You and I are wise to seek counsel when making decisions, but not so with God. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, Paul asked, and the answer is no one. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Again, no one has given anything to God that obligates God to give back to them. To the contrary, from him and through him and to him are all things. It is not just our doctrine of salvation that needs work, friends, if this doctrine of predestination is troubling to us. It is first and foremost our doctrine of God. Is he God or is he not? Is he the source of all things or are we the source of all things? Does he determine or do we? Paul again and again is driving this point home. He wants us to see that God predestined according to the counsel of his will. As stated yet again, Paul does not leave the question according to what unanswered. What moved God to predestinate as he did? Again, the answer, nothing external to him, not the counsel of another, not what he foresaw, 
Certainly not the choices of his creatures considered ahead of time. Instead, God predestined according to his own purpose, for he is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I think we are to notice that this text says all things. This means all things. Somehow, and I do not claim to understand it fully or to have the capacity to explain it, God will use all things, even the bad things, which he has permitted for his glory and for the good of his beloved. Paul addresses this in Romans 8 and 9. In Romans 8.28, we find those famous and much-loved words, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. In Romans 9, we find less famous and often despised words. Verse 14 of Romans 9 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul has continued to flesh out this doctrine of election And he anticipates the objection that some will say, well, that's unjust for God to choose some and not others. And so he raises that anticipated objection. Is there injustice on God's part, he asks. He replies very quickly and firmly, saying, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Paul concludes, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That is a very important statement as it pertains to the things that we have here been discussing. What does it depend upon ultimately then? So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? So here Paul anticipates another objection, for who can resist his will? Paul replies again quickly and firmly, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As I have said, and again, I do not claim to understand it fully or to have the capacity to explain it, God will use all things, even the bad things which he has permitted, for his glory and for the good of his beloved. This touches upon the so-called problem of evil. And perhaps you have noticed that Christians who are opposed to the doctrines that I have here presented sometimes like to press those of us who are of a Calvinistic or Reformed persuasion with this so-called problem of evil, saying, if it is true that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, then what about evil? What about the fall of man into sin? What about all of the evils that we see 
in the world? Now, I don't deny that this is a difficult question. And in general, I will say what I have said before. We must acknowledge that God works all things to the counsel of his will. The scriptures teach this plainly. And that somehow God will use all things, even the bad things, which he has permitted for his glory and for the good of his beloved. But if you are a Christian who scoffs at the doctrine of predestination, let me put two questions to you. One, what do you do with all of these passages that teach predestination? If you believe the Bible, what do you do with them? And two, what do you do with the so-called problem of evil? If you believe in the God of Scripture, a God who is good, a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, then the problem of evil is a problem for you too. Even if you reject this doctrine of predestination, you still have to address this so-called problem of evil. Do you have a better answer than the one that is set forth by the Reformed? Do you have a better answer than the one summarized within chapters 3 and 5 of our Confession of Faith? And no, blaming evil entirely on the free will of the creature will not get you very far. Not if you wish to maintain that God is omniscient. At some point, you must say what we say, if you are to be biblical, that God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free an immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. You also must add this, I think, if you are to be biblical, that the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extendeth even to the first fall, and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth, and otherwise ordereth and governeth in a manifold dispensation of his most holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures, and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. This is the Second London Confession chapter 5, paragraph 4. And so, Christian, I am asking you this, if this is not your position, if this is not your answer to the question of the problem of evil, then what is your answer? Do you have a better one, one that is more biblical than this? Now, having discussed the general principle that is set forth in Ephesians 1.11, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, Let us now return to the text and remember that Paul is here giving special consideration to the appointment that those who were the first to hope in Christ were predestined to receive. Again, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, or I think better yet, an appointment, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Here Paul is drawing special attention to the role played by those first disciples of Christ in the outworking of God's plan of redemption. 
We are to remember that these first disciples of Jesus, of whom Paul was one, were all Jews. They were of the Hebrew people. They were children of Abraham, according to the flesh. And Paul is here saying that they, that is those who were the first to hope in Christ, were predestined in Christ to play a special role in God's plan of redemption. They were to be to the praise of God's glory, he says. And what was their special appointment all about? Well, I think we find a clue in verse 13 when Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Here in this passage, Paul is making a distinction between those Jewish converts who were the first to hope in Christ and those Gentile converts who had heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, from them. This distinction between Jew and Gentile is made, as I have said before, not to create division within the church, but instead to promote unity within Christ's church. And you should know that this was, in fact, a problem within the early church. Uh, Jews and Gentiles were not unified. But here, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, and by way of extension to the rest of the churches in Asia Minor, who were largely made up of Gentile or non-Jewish Christians, he set out to show that in Christ they are one. The Jews, who were the first to hope in Christ, had a special role to play in God's plan of redemption. They were God's chosen people under the Old Covenant. To them, the promises that were made to their forefathers were entrusted The prophets came from them, and so did the Christ in the fullness of time. And so they were a special and privileged people, therefore. But what was their mission? What was their appointment? What was the purpose of God for them? His purpose was from the beginning that through them the gospel of Jesus the Christ would go to the nations. You haven't forgotten what was said to Father Abraham when God first called him, have you? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And lastly, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what appointment? did Christ give to his Jewish apostles as he prepared to ascend to the Father? He said to them quite clearly, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." How did the apostles of Christ, and especially Paul, who was known as the apostle to the Gentiles, view themselves? They viewed themselves as having a special obligation, a special calling to testify to the world concerning the good news of Jesus the Christ. That is what Paul is alluding to here. He is distinguishing between the first Jewish converts and the later Gentile converts not to bring division— Uh, not to claim that one is superior over the other, but to bring unity. And where is this unity found? I want for you to pay close attention to this. 
Their unity is found, our unity is found, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Listen again to Paul's words in verse 13. In him you also, you predominantly Gentile Christians living in Ephesus, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul is here making a distinction between the Jew and Gentile Christians, those who first trusted in Christ and those who would trust in him later through their word, in order to emphasize what they have in common. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Why are Jew and Gentile Christians one in Christ? Paul establishes the reason early in his epistle. They are one because both were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Both were united to Christ by faith, by the work of this Holy Spirit. And this is huge. The implications of this are far-reaching. Our union in Christ is not in any way fleshly or earthly. Our union is based not upon race or ethnicity, natural birth or genealogy, wealth, education, or social status. Our union with Christ is wrought instead by the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which all who are in Christ receive the moment they believe. Now, this is a bit of a side note, and so I will not develop this thought at this time too thoroughly. But I do wish that those who believe in infant baptism— or those who are now considering the Paedo-Baptist position, as it is called, would think carefully about what Paul says here in Ephesians regarding our union with one another being rooted in our union with Christ as wrought by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Under the Old Covenant, the Jewish people enjoyed covenantal union with one another, even apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, by virtue of their natural descent from Abraham. In other words, all who were born from Abraham— were born into the covenant that was transacted with him. It was right and natural, therefore, for the sign of that covenant to be applied to the infants. They were in Abraham, no matter if they believed in the promises that were given to him. But under the new covenant, that ethnic and generational principle melts away. Once the Christ, who descended from Abraham, instituted the new covenant by his shed blood, Ethnicity and natural descent does not matter at all. Jew and Gentile are united as one in this new covenant, not by natural birth, but by new birth. When they believe, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, united in Christ by faith, and have equal share in the inheritance. And here is why it is only appropriate to give the sign of the new covenant to those who believe. It is only those who believe who are sealed with the Spirit, united to Christ, and are partakers of all the benefits which he has secured. Stated differently, who your parents or grandparents are matters not a lick under the new covenant. Those who are born to a believing parent or parents are in a privileged position, given that they are in close proximity to the gospel. In that sense, they are sanctified. But being born to Jewish parents or Hungarian parents or Chinese parents matters not at all in terms of the question, are you 
in or out of this covenant of grace. Truth be told, no one has ever been born into the covenant of grace. All are born into that covenant of works which Adam broke. For a time, some people, particularly the Hebrew people, were born under the Abrahamic covenant, which gave birth also to the Mosaic covenant in the fullness of time. The promises of the covenant of grace were beautifully contained and proclaimed in those covenants, and some of the Jews believed the promises. But men and women became partakers of the covenant of grace only by faith, even then. This is how it has always been. It is certainly the way that it is now. We are brought into this covenant of grace. We are brought into union with Christ, and therefore union with one another only by new birth, by the new birth wrought by the Holy Spirit. So why does Paul refer to the Holy Spirit as the promised Holy Spirit at the end of verse 13? The Spirit is called the promised Holy Spirit because the Old Testament prophets prophesied concerning the day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out in abundance and upon all flesh, that is to say, not only upon the Jews, but also the Gentiles. For example, the prophet Joel said, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And so I hope that you could hear it there in the prophet. God speaking through him said, The days are coming where I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There's certainly a reference to all the peoples of the earth, and not the Jews only. The people of God living under the Old Covenant lived with this expectation that in the future the Spirit of God would be poured out like never before in abundance and upon all flesh. For this was promised to them by God. Read Ezekiel 36 and 37 for yourself. Read Isaiah 32. In fact, read the book of Acts and see how significant this theme regarding the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is. You will note that the Spirit was poured out first upon the Jewish Christians. Uh, That is to say, upon those who were the first to hope in Christ. And when it was poured out upon the Jewish disciples, they spoke in tongues. And no, this was not a heavenly prayer language, but it was known languages. The languages, in fact, of the nations And why would that be? Well, because under the new covenant, the gospel was to be proclaimed among the nations. And then keep reading in Acts and see the theme of the outpouring of the Spirit develop. Watch how those who were the first to hope in Christ marveled over the fact that the Spirit was poured out also upon the Gentiles as the gospel was proclaimed to them. When Paul calls the Spirit the promised Holy Spirit, he is highlighting this progression in the history of redemption. He is saying to his Gentile brethren, the day has come for the Spirit to be poured out, and you are proof of it, because you, Gentiles, have become partakers of this Holy Spirit. You also, like us, have been sealed. 
The promises of God concerning the coming of the Christ, the new covenant, the expansion of the kingdom to the ends of the earth, and the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh have come. That is what Paul is saying. And you, Ephesians, again, are proof of it, for you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does it mean to be sealed? A seal is a guarantee. It is a certification of the reality or authenticity of a thing. And when Paul says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, he is saying that God has put his mark on us by the Spirit. God has certified the authenticity of our salvation by sealing us with the Spirit. Water baptism, by the way, is the visible and sacramental sign of this invisible work. The Spirit is a down payment or guarantee of our inheritance, therefore. And this is what Paul says in verse 14. Speaking of the Spirit, he says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The word translated inheritance here is different than the one translated as inheritance earlier in this text. We will have the fullness of our inheritance in the new heavens and new earth. There, all will be filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit has been poured out now. We have a foretaste, therefore, of the future, full and final inheritance that is ours through faith in Christ Jesus. God has given to his people a down payment of the Spirit, so as to stay, there is more of this to come. Notice that this sealing of the Spirit was received by the Ephesians when they believed the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, which is also to say, when they believed in Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourselves, well, I thought that the work of the Spirit comes before faith. I thought that faith is a gift and that the Spirit of God is the one who enables us to believe. Uh, Doesn't he call us to faith? Doesn't he open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the gospel with belief? Doesn't he make those who are dead to live so that they might lay a hold of Christ by faith and walk with him? And the answer, of course, is yes, all of that is true. But those things just mentioned are called effectual calling or regeneration. Those are also works of the Holy Spirit, and those works do precede faith. But here we are talking about sealing. The Spirit does many things for the believer, friends. Some things precede faith, some things accompany faith, and some things follow faith. The scriptures also teach that the Spirit helps the believer and sanctifies the believer. And so the Spirit does many things. Calling, regeneration precedes faith. But here Paul says that this sealing takes place when we believe. It accompanies belief. When we believe upon Christ as he is presented to us in the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, we too are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. By the way, with all of this predestination and election talk, I want for you to notice that Paul, in the same passage, makes mention of the preaching of the gospel of truth and also of faith. The simple point that I'm making here is this. The doctrine of predestination does not obliterate or contradict the doctrine of human responsibility or choice but rather complies with it. God has predestined some to adoption as sons, 
but those who are predestined only come to have the adoption of sons, along with every other spiritual blessing in Christ, through the means of the preaching of the gospel and received by faith. And that brings us back to the beginning of verse 13 and the words, In him you also. Again, the reason Paul makes a distinction between those who were the first to hope in Christ and the Ephesians who believed later and through their word. The reason he makes a distinction between Jew and Gentile is not to divide, but to unite. In him you also, he says, and then he proceeds to show that the Ephesians have been sealed with the same spirit and have the down payment, therefore, of the same inheritance because they are united to the same Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord. This theme that is introduced very briefly here will be developed later in Paul's epistle. And I would like to quickly read the passage to you where Paul develops this theme more fully. So if you would, please turn to Ephesians 2.11 and we will read uh, that verse and following. Follow along carefully because I'm going to read quickly. Ephesians 2 verse 11. Here Paul develops this theme concerning our union in Christ which is wrought by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. How beautiful that is, brothers and sisters. We'll consider that passage in detail once we come to it. But here, I want for you to see that Paul introduces a theme, unity in the inaugurated new creation. And he will develop that theme even more fully in the passages to come. And this is the doctrinal basis for Paul's application. When he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what Paul is exhorting us to do, to be at peace with one another, to have unity within Christ's church. And what is the theological basis for our unity? Well, here Paul refers to it as the unity of the Spirit, the unity that is wrought by the promised Holy Spirit. Notice lastly that all of this is said to be to the praise of the glory of God. Friends, let us not forget Paul's purpose for writing this letter. 
It was for this reason that he bowed his knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And here I am praying, brothers and sisters, that Paul's enthusiasm for the love and grace of God would be contagious. May we be moved to marvel over it as he did. May we, along with him, give glory to God for his marvelous and undeserved grace. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, as we call you by that name, we are reminded of the fact that we have been reconciled to you and adopted as your children. Undeserving as we are, you have blessed us with this, along with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we are grateful, O Lord. We are thankful for the way in which you have accomplished redemption, first promising the gospel even to Adam, and then calling Abram and his descendants, the Jewish people. Lord, we thank you for what you did in and through that people. From them the Christ came. To them were entrusted the promises. Uh, They were the ones who were in a covenantal relationship with you. We give you thanks for them, therefore. We give you thanks for the fact that from them the gospel came even to us who live so long after the resurrection of Christ. But here we are today living in this year 2020 with faith in the same Christ, united to him by the power of the Holy Spirit and thus united to one another. Father, we do pray that you would help us as your children to live for the glory of your name. May the world look in upon us and see that we are at peace with you, that we are at peace within ourselves, and that we are at peace with one another also. And Father, we do also pray that you would make us faithful to proclaim this gospel of peace to the world. We pray that you would make us ready and willing and able to speak of Christ And that this gospel would go forth with the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that it must if any are to be saved. And we are asking, Lord, that you will do that work in and through us. Father, we pray that your kingdom would be advanced in this world. We pray that your church would be built up strong and true and pure. Father, we pray that you would help us even in this time uh, to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Father, may it be so that our hope is evident. And then help us to be ready to give a reason for it, Lord, as you give us opportunity. Father, we do pray that you would provide for the needs of your saints at this time. We pray for our government, that you would give them wisdom. Father, we pray for those in our community, that you would sustain them as they provide essential services, protect especially our health care workers at this time. Father, we pray for the health of the members of our congregation. Lord, keep us free from illness, we pray. For those who are ill, we pray that you would raise them up quickly. Uh, 
Father, help us to love and care for one another in this time of need. And Father, I do also pray for those who are unemployed at this time or underemployed. I pray that you would provide your people with with good and honest work, uh, work uh, where they can bring glory to you through the accomplishment of it, uh, work that will enable them to provide for themselves and their families. Lord, uh, go before your people. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread is our prayer, O Lord. And Lord, would you forgive us of our sins and help us always to forgive those who have sinned against us. I do pray, Father, that you would free us from all bitterness, uh, make us willing to forgive uh, just as we have been forgiven, if it is not so within us, Lord. Father, we pray that you would lead us day by day in paths of righteousness for our good and for your name's sake above all else. It's in the name of Christ we say these things. Amen.